Hi, this is Janie, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, folks, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. Thanks for taking time to join me. It is Sunday, May 15th. We're continuing in our five-week sermon series called James, Faith and Works. Today, we're halfway through. Now, when I started this series, I said that each week we'd be looking at two interrelated ideas from the specific scripture passage that week. In the first sermon, we talked about testing and perseverance. Last week, we talked about listening and doing, and that it's one thing to listen and receive the word, but another to actually do it. To be living God's best, we've got to learn to be people of action who not only hear the word, but respond in righteousness to the word. James elaborates on this idea more in chapter 2 by comparing the relationship between faith and works, which are our two interrelated ideas this week. Now, this comparison, and rightly so, has drawn the attention of pastors and theologians for hundreds of years. For instance, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Faith without works is not faith at all, but a simple lack of obedience to God. Charles Spurgeon said, Faith and works are bound up in that same bundle. He that obeys God trusts God, and he that trusts God obeys God. He that is without faith is without works, and he that is without works is without faith. And C.S. Lewis said, Regarding the debate about faith and works, it's like asking which blade in a pair of scissors is more important. So is there really a debate? It sure seems so based on James' letter to the church in Jerusalem. Is the debate an ongoing one? I imagine it is. But I'll let you come to your own conclusion after we spend some time learning from James. I've got a lot more to share. But before I do, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing study in this book of James. What fantastic truths we're understanding. Today we're going to learn about faith and works. Teach us. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Open up your Bible or Bible app to our text today, which is James chapter 2, verses 14 to 24. James chapter 2, 14 to 24. Here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. Now, interestingly, in this section, 
James makes several comparisons and shares historical examples of people who pursued faith and works. In fact, if you really want to take a deep dive, just read through all of the heroes of faith listed in Hebrews 11, and you'll quickly see that many of those we hold in high regard had two things, incredible faith and righteous works. So that brings us to the first idea of the day, which is saving faith. Take a look at verse 14, which says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can faith save him? These two questions in this one verse are at the heart of what C.S. Lewis referred to as a debate about faith and works. And James will start to get into some practical examples next, which will highlight the point he's trying to make. But before we go on, let me ask all of you today, what good is all the faith in the world if it doesn't move you to action? Can a person with an inactive faith truly be saved? That's part of the first verse that's so difficult to reconcile, especially in light of the passage in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which so clearly states we're saved apart from the works we do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. So on one hand, it seems clear from Scripture that salvation comes through faith alone, not as a result of anything you or I do. And on the other hand, what James is saying is a faith-filled person will be a person of righteous action. Now, I've heard it said that you're not saved by good works, but saved to good works. And once you're saved, the righteous action of a transformed heart and mind will follow. Thankfully, Jesus himself gives us some divine insight right smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he said in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can identify people by their actions. I go back to verse 16 for a minute and it says you can identify them by their fruit, that is by the way they act. I mean, what an amazing insight from Christ himself. So simple, so straightforward, so very practical. As Jesus says earlier in Matthew 7, we're not to judge others, but we're invited to be fruit inspectors, if you will. Or said another way, we can expect there will be fruit from the life of one who follows Jesus. And not every tree produces the same fruit or the same amount of fruit, but it can be expected that those in Christ will produce some kind of fruit in some amount. So it's not that your works save you, but rather once saved, the kingdom works will follow. And this brings us to the next section of James, where he begins making comparisons and sharing examples to substantiate the point he's trying to make. His very first point is in verses 15 and 16, where he talks about someone in need and doing nothing. Read those verses with me. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? 
This is where James makes it personal. Here he gives an example of a hypothetical person who may have been someone in his congregation who was in real need. To be without food or clothing is to be in a desperate yet all too common situation. To bring this home, what if you see a brother or sister in need, someone whom you share faith with, someone from your church body? What if you see this person in need and try to warm them with just words, but nothing else? James asks, what good is it? Too often we in the church offer mere words like prayers, advice, and encouragement. When we're being called to actually act, the need is obvious and the resources are not lacking or the problem. The problem is we have a lack of help. Faith that does not result in actions is no more effective than a pious wish for that person to be warmed and fed. Words without action accomplish nothing. And then in verse 17, James says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. A conviction or intellectual belief that refuses to obey the commands of Christ is unprofitable. In other words, it's dead. Good deeds are the fruit of living faith. If there are no positive actions, then the professed faith is no faith at all. It is dead. It is useless. The right actions prove our faith to be real faith. Believing involves faith keeping company with action. If those around us note our actions, they should be led to know the faith that motivates them. If others hear us speak of faith, they must also see us act out that faith. Then James says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Now this someone in verse 18 considers faith and good deeds to be separate and alternate expressions of Christianity. In other words, you do your deeds, I'll have my faith, and we'll be religious in our own ways. But the two can't be separated without ceasing to be alive. Faith lives in the action it generates. Actions require faith to gain a particular meaning. James responded with a challenge by saying, I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds, but I will show you my faith through my good deeds. Faith can't be demonstrated apart from action. Faith is within us. It can only be seen by the actions it produces through us. Anyone can profess faith, but only actions show its genuineness. James continues in verse 19, You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The belief that there is one God is a fundamental tenet of the Judeo-Christian faith. This is what we would call a doctrinal pillar of our faith. And James is making the point that his original listeners were good to have the right doctrine. But then he makes the point that even the demons believe in the right doctrine and they shudder because of it. They're terrified by that truth. They believe in God only to hate and resist him in every way they can. Their faith even moves them to a negative reaction, while the faith of some of James' readers isn't real enough to give them a shiver. The demons shudder in terror and demonstrate that their faith is real, though misdirected. Clearly, this is an issue Pastor James gets really fired up about. In verse 20, he goes on to say, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Now James calls this hypothetical person a fool, which means that that person is a hollow man. If the faith around which we build our lives turns out to be empty, we are truly hollow people as well. There are times when we need more teaching and understanding in order to respond to God's direction, but most often 
We know what needs to be done, yet we're unwilling to act. Whatever was going on in this early church community, it was wearing on James. Maybe he was tired of trying to inspire people to action. Maybe his congregation was too comfortable in their orthodoxy. Maybe he felt what we've all felt at some point, which is that he wanted to see faith move people. Whatever the case, his next example is a shot right into the heart of the Jewish faith with a look at the life of Abraham, who, as you know, was willing to sacrifice his own son in obedience to the Lord. Follow along as I read verses 21 to 23. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Take a look at verse 21. From his own case studies, James now turns to historical figures from the Old Testament that he expects will confirm what he's been teaching about the importance of active faith. Abraham was one of the Old Testament figures most revered by the Jews. Abraham's remarkable obedience is being willing to sacrifice his son at God's command, and that was evidence of the works for which Abraham was declared right with God. What was Abraham doing when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? He was trusting God. The lesson we can draw from Abraham's life is not a comparison between his sacrifices and ours. We can expect that in one way or another, our faith will have to grow from internal trust to external action. Eventually, like Abraham, we too will have to answer the question, do I really trust God? Then in verse 22, James points out that Abraham's faith was much more than just belief in the one God. The fruit of Abraham's great faith was in his deeds. His faith was made complete by what he did, by his actions. His faith produced his actions, and his actions completed his faith, meaning they perfected or matured it. Mature and complete believers are produced through perseverance in trials. Mature and complete faith is produced through works or obedience to God. Faith and works should not be confused with each other, but neither can they be separated from each other. And lastly, in verse 23, we read that Abraham believed God. So God gave Abraham the status of a right relationship with him. And this happened before Abraham's noted works, such as his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, and even before Abraham was circumcised. Abraham believed God, so God declared him to be righteous. James showed that Abraham's righteousness was the basis and reason for all those actions. Because of Abraham's great faith and obedience, he held the privileged status of being called the friend of God. Acting out our trust in God will lead to friendship with him as it did in Abraham's case. Now there's one more verse I want to talk about, and that's verse 24. It reads, You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. Now many have said that this statement contradicts Paul's position, who wrote in Romans 3.28, So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Indeed, if both James and Paul used the term made right, or in other words justified, in the same way, this verse would contradict Paul's teaching about justification by faith alone. But for James, being made right refers to God's final verdict over our entire Christian lives, whereby we're declared righteous for having lived a life that was fruitful to the end. For Paul, being made right 
is the initial granting of righteousness upon a person's acceptance of Christ. For James, works, or in other words, what we do, are the natural products of true faith. For Paul, works, or obeying the law, are what people were trying to do in order to be saved. For James, faith alone is the shallow belief in an idea. No commitment or life change is involved. For Paul, faith is saving faith, the belief that brings about an intimate union with Christ and results in salvation and obedience. Paul made clear that a person enters into God's kingdom only by faith. James made clear that God required good deeds from those who are in the kingdom. Now, this is the last of the examples that James shares in our passage for the day, but not the last example he shares here in chapter 2. If you feel inclined to read on, you can. There's only two more verses. However, the point of the passage and the message seems to be fairly clear at this point. Faith and works are partners. As C.S. Lewis made the point earlier, it's like trying to decide which blade on a pair of scissors is more important. You need both, and you can have both as a follower of Christ. The various trials of our lives are accomplishing something in us, as we learned a couple of weeks ago. Trials force us to lean into God, which in turn grows our faith, which in turn makes us even more courageous and action-oriented in other areas of our lives. If you've seen him show up once, you know he can do it again. Now, you've all probably heard that faith is like a muscle, and the more you exercise your faith, the stronger it becomes. But not all of us are inclined to willingly thrust ourselves and our families into situations that would stimulate our faith to grow, especially in the ways James probably had in mind when he wrote this letter, as the church in Jerusalem was being persecuted. And yet, these are some of the moments where we see our faith grow the most, in the midst of suffering, pain, hardship, and persecution. Maybe James was trying to inspire his church to keep going, to keep fighting the good fight, as the Apostle Paul says. Maybe it had been difficult enough for long enough that people were starting to lose hope. Maybe a reminder that faith without action is dead was exactly the kind of blunt truth this early church community needed to hear. And maybe it's the truth you need to hear right now, today as well. We live in an admittedly easy culture compared to the one James was writing from. And it's no secret that there are other believers all around the world today facing very real life or death persecution because of their faith. So I want to encourage you, beloved. I want to encourage you to find ways this week to put your faith into action. Don't get too comfortable or worse, complacent in your faith. Allow yourself to enter into situations that will stretch you and grow you as a believer. Pray that God will give you the courage to step out in faith. And remember, the world is hungry for the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are God's chosen ambassadors to spread that message. Let your faith and your works be co-laborers for the kingdom of heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.